So let's go with uh, opening in prayer and then going from there. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you, we do praise you for just being an awesome God, that we can lift up our voices, worship you, and praise you for all the wonderful things that you have done. You have touched, you have healed, you have moved through our church. And I pray, Father, that you just be here today to continue, just to continue to move and to heal. And that we, Father, would draw closer and be inspired by what Esther has done. And that we would see, Father, a reason, a reason for the things that have happened in our life. We thank you, Father. We praise you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we've been going through Esther and coming into chapter 3, we've seen in the first two chapters, if you would, uh, Esther and especially Esther being encouraged last week. And she was encouraged by Mordecai. Here she was as a gal, uh, as an orphan, uh, left alone in a certain sense. And her brother's uncle, whatever, something or other, picks her up and says, you know, I see something in you and I'm going to take you as my own daughter. And Mordecai for us became an example of an encourager who could see something and imparted part of himself into her. And, and he really wanted to be able to say, uh, there's something more to you that meets the eye. And Esther, as we find out, is going to be our, our star of the show. <clears throat> she's going to be our hero, and she's going to be doing the right thing at the right time. But it's, it's important we see that here she is as a girl, lost and confused and wondering what's going on with her life, as she's now a Jewish girl in Persia, modern-day Iran, and she's now in a, a foreign place, feeling forgotten. And and if you would, it's important for us to understand that God has a plan and a purpose for her and is working to bring things together for His divine plan, His web, His network that God is always spinning, comparing that to the worldwide web of, of heathenism that was around her. And we saw Esther then have to replace Queen Vashti, and Queen Vashti was the woman that was beautiful to behold, and yet she stood up to the king and said, I'm not here to be your your trinket. I'm not here for your showmanship. And we saw that Queen Esther replaced her. And through this uh, long, strange set of circumstances, Esther's now in a place. And now we're going to get introduced to a, a third character, fourth character to this thing, a guy named Haman, who's going to be our evil counterpart, if you would. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus, the king that we're familiar with, he says he promoted a guy named Haman, the son of Hamadatha, something like that. And he's an Agite. And it, and it says that he advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes who were above him. So we saw this other guy last week, uh, Mamukis or something like that, that uh, was the big head honcho. And now this new guy's coming on board, and he's going to be the number two guy, but he's going to be above everyone else besides the king. And it tells you that all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai, the Jew, would not bow or pay homage to him. And so I, I kind of see this guy, Haman, coming onto the scene, and he's going to have a, an evil conspiracy plot 
You're going to watch confrontation start to happen. And he's going to be the part, and I think his first three letters of his name spell it out pretty clearly, that he's a ham. And as a ham, he's somebody that likes to have the attention, the, the world's eye, and people staring at him. And I think this guy, Haman, just really digs having everybody bow down and worship him and say, hey, there's something really special about that guy. And he's going to be somebody that eats up the glory. He wants to touch that glory and grab it all to himself. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, we can see that he's living in the king's world. And as we've seen King Ahasuerus, we've talked about his worldwide web, and we talked about he's this guy that loves himself. The king was the big ham. He liked to party and play and liked to have everybody know that he was the number one guy. We watched him have a six-month-long celebration, a drinking fest for six months to celebrate his good kingdom. <clears throat> Put off by seven days of the big feast until finally on the last day of the seven-day feast, Queen Vashti was to come out. And we saw how she was like, I'm not here to play your game and to kiss up to you and to be part of this little, oh, you know, King Ahasuerus. So King Ahasuerus now is attracting another guy that's like him, this guy Haman. And Haman's going to be this guy that wants everybody and wants everybody to, to worship him and to play it up. Now, just as a side note, it has been noted that uh, this guy Haman is going to be an agagite. Like, like Popeye would say over his spinach. Agite. He's an agite. I don't know. That's me. That's the way I look at it. Now, now it's interesting and it's important for us to note that as we've looked at Mordecai and the Jews, we've said that Mordecai was of the descendants of Kish. We said Kish was a Benjamite. And we also made note of the fact that you know, this Jewish line of, of, of Esther and Mordecai are coming from some of the lines of King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel, if you would. And uh, 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 here he was as, as one of those descendants of a king. And we said that there could be a drop or two of royalty in Esther's blood. But we're seeing now another descendant, an old-time player, if it's King Agai. And there's hundreds of years in between, and it's kind of working hard at it to make it come out this way. But it would be interesting to see now that as King Agai, the Agagites were descendants of King Agag, and King Agag was a guy that, that King Saul had to deal with. And it's an interesting story because King Agag was, was, was a, a, a king of the Amalekites and the Amalekites really upset God. Uh, it goes all the way back to the days of Moses now, hundreds of years before, when Moses had the two million people, 600,000 men of war and their wives and children were dragged behind them. And as they leave Egypt and they're going through 40 years of being in the wilderness, they're trouncing on everybody else's backyards. And some people got upset about that, the Amalekites. And what the Amalekites did is they took a cheap shot at Moses. They didn't confront him with his 600,000 men of war. They, they came and they attacked from the rear. The Amalekites were kind of nomadic people. And so if you could picture going from one part of the wilderness to another part of the wilderness, you got the main body of Jews traveling. 
And there was the women, the children, the weak, and some of the other mixed multitude dragging behind. And so the Amalekites would come up and start to slaughter and kill some of the lagging behind Jews. And God was livid over it. You know, how dare you take a cheap shot? And, you know, God's patient in a certain sense, and he turns around and says, there'll come a day when we enter into the promised land, when we raise up a king, we're going to come back and slaughter these people for their little tricks. And so they're in the promised land. King Saul now, the first king of Israel, is there. And as now Samuel, the prophet, comes up and he says, you know, God's told us we've got to deal with a problem. These Amalekites out there, they need a lesson taught to them. I want you to go out and slaughter them and slaughter them all, women, children, and everyone. And I know this is the hard part of the Bible where a lot of people says, God said what? Isn't that hard? Isn't that difficult? Show some mercy. But it's an important lesson for us because we, we start to see that, that Saul goes out and he slaughters the men of war of the Amalekites but he saves all the good-looking women. He saves all the things that he thought were precious and valuable and the animals and the sheep and says, I saved the best. And Samuel the prophet comes up and he says, what did you do? I told you to kill them all. And why did you save some? And so then the message goes out that Samuel was livid. He takes a sword, cuts off King Agag's head. I don't know, that's a pretty strong impression if you saw Pastor Dave out there, the sword chopping somebody's head off. And here's the mighty man of God, Samuel, saying, you've got to chop the head off. You've got to kill this thing. And obviously because Agag had descendants, just maybe, just maybe, these descendants are still hundreds of years later still destroying the Jews in the future. And the sermon lesson is, is that when you have something in your life that's a problem, and God comes and speaks to you and says, you need to put an end to this. You need to be obedient and fully execute the command of the Lord in your life. Take that a step further. We have a tendency in our life to flirt with, play with sin. We have a tendency to sit down there. When God says, I want you to do away with something, we sit down there and question the Lord. Oh, come on, you don't really mean like that. Isn't that a little radical? Isn't that a little extreme, Lord? Why don't we take this in phases? I don't particularly want to give up like sin like completely. And the truth of the matter is, is the more you play with sin, the more it comes back to destroy you. It nips away at you from behind and starts to deteriorate and to destroy your life until you're left with nothing. And God comes up and he says, slaughter the Amalekites. Had it with them. You've got to put an end to these people. These people are going to come up. You can't flirt with them. You can't play with them. You can't say, we want the good-looking women. We're going to spare them. Oh, we want the best. And, 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 and Samuel is explicit. He says, you've got to put down this. And yet, because of Saul's wanting to play with and never fully execute, the Amalekites have always been a, a thorn in the side. They're coming back up, and even year, now hundreds of years later, you're seeing that he's an Agagite. He's, he's Haman. And now he's coming on the scene. And now, if you would, it's telling us that, uh, verse 2, all the king's servants who were within the king's gate, the big ham, they bowed and they paid homage to, to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, and it says, but Mordecai, the Jew, would not bow or pay homage to him. And so 
all of a sudden there's going to be a conflict where the Jews would say, we want to stand up, we want to, we want to uh, uh, not bow our knees to anyone but God. And now this guy's asking for that attention. So verse 3 it says, And then the Lord's servants, um, then the king's servants, sorry, then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Hey, why do you transgress the king's command? Like, why do you got to be the problem here? Everything's going fine. You're standing up and you're making an issue out of it. What's your issue? And, and Mordecai, why don't you kiss up like everyone else? That's just the way things are done. And yet Mordecai is that type of guy that says, I'm not playing this game. I'm not going to get caught up in the world wide web just as Queen Vashti did. I'm not here for this. So we go on to verse 4 and it says, Now it happened when they spoke to him daily. Come on, come on, come on. And then he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman. Hey, you know this guy Mordecai? He's making a fool out of you. And it says specifically to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. And so all of a sudden you're seeing that, hey, we want to see a confrontation. We're watching something happen and we're trying to push this to the forefront. We want to see if Mordecai's really got what it takes to stand up to Haman face to face. And it says, and you're seeing some of the things that's going on here, it says, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Oh, wait a second, wait a second. If we back up and we understand Mordecai, Mordecai had, you know, encouraged Esther. Esther is now the queen. And one thing we understand when Mordecai told Esther, he says, Esther, shut your mouth about being a Jew. People around here don't like Jews. And if you'd like to be queen... He charged her, instructed her, and said, Shh, don't say anything. Yet when it came to himself, and so many times with being an instructor and encourager, it's easy to give instructions and it's hard to follow through. His own lips are now going to be what his problem are because he's opening up his mouth and saying, hey, I'm a Jew. And hence goes the old adage, loose lips sink ships. And so if you would... It's now being out, hey, this guy's a Jew, and he's standing up to you. And it says, when Haman saw, verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with wrath. He's mad. Sure enough, this guy's not bowing down and kissing up to me. And it says, it says, but he disdained, didn't want to, to lay hands on Mordecai, alone so he's saying he didn't want to just hurt mordecai for they had told him of the people of mordecai he's a jew instead haman sought to destroy all the jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of ahasuerus the people of mordecai now i find that to be a a rather difficult statement verse six it's saying he disdained to lay hands on mordecai alone And I look at that and I go, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that he was so mad, he was so bent, that just killing Mordecai wasn't good enough? He had overflowing anger and he wanted to kill them all. It could very easily read that way. could actually be read another way. That what what Haman's plan was is to turn around and to cover and to conceal his sin of his hatred towards Mordecai 
didn't want to single them out, but his process was if I, if I kill all the Jews, then if Mordecai's dead, then they won't see that it's just me having a little petty issue. And sometimes his mass anger is there because something got underneath his skin. Something was bothering him, and he didn't want that to be exposed, so he was planning to kill everyone. I suppose that's the same process we found out with our Beltway, you know, sharpshooter there back in 2002, the guy who decided to go around Washington and start being the sniper and shooting everybody. And we all said, well, gee, it was some guy in a white truck driving around shooting people at total random. Well, we found out that it was two guys in the back of some little caprice And one of the guys really wanted to shoot his ex-wife and had something to do with child support and losing custody of a kid. And the fact is, is that he was bent on killing someone, but wanted to mysteriously kill random people so that he would not be, you know, singled out as why this lady was going to be shot. And it's sad that people can work hard to cover and to conceal the truth of the matter. And I think uh, Haman was trying to conceal. He was so full of pride, it would have looked obvious if he just went up and shot or cut off Mordecai's head and people would have said, boy, aren't we a little touchy. But he wanted to say, no, there's a just cause for me killing them all. I get tired of the cover-up. It's sad to see another, it almost seems like a weekly event. Northern Illinois there, we're watching uh, 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 another guy go into a school and start to shoot everybody up. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm watching this unfold on the news And it's sad to say that nobody seems to ever ask the the pointed questions and go, gee, here's a guy who's got a graduate degree. He's graduated, college-educated boy in sociology. Why is the boy in sociology coming up and shooting everybody? Doesn't he understand social order? You figure he would know. But nobody seems to ask the question, huh, Another school shooting. I wonder if this has anything to do with, like, uh, taking God out of school. I I wonder if this has anything to do with understanding that we socially get along with each other because we're all evolving is the mindset of the college campus. Oh, no, we can't say that, can we? No, no, it has nothing to do with that God stuff. Keep that away from this. No, he just killed people because he's it, 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 it was his medication, of course. Oh, we don't want to say that now either, do we? Because if he's off his medications, maybe we might have to actually think about why we're drugging America at rampant rates of putting everybody on these antidepressants. Oh, well, if you don't take them, then you go start shooting people. Oh, 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 we don't want to say that. Uh, It must be because his parents were Christians or something. I'm sure there's a Christian in there someplace to blame for this. And it's sad to see that there's such a a massive cover-up of the obvious questions of people that just don't want to deal with issues. And it's sad to see that here's Haman, a guy that just doesn't want to deal with his issues. And it's sad that so many people are really, truly just lonely. And here's a guy on a college campus, he's lonely. I read an article on the Internet the other day, and they're talking about the problem in Egypt. In Egypt, it's getting to be an impoverished nation. Men are not able to go out and afford the dowry to go get a woman. And hence, the, the problem continues where now almost 40% of the men underneath the 40 years of age in Egypt are single. There's an awful lot of sexual frustration going on over there. 
And all these guys are sitting down there starting to fall into the let's go blow up something mentality and become a martyr. And they're watching the Egyptians are watching their own nation. So they're starting to have mass weddings. Let's, okay, let's get past the cost of a wedding and get everybody married so we can calm the people down. And the truth of the matter is, is that what people need is not to be turned into suicide bombers because of their loneliness. But the truth is, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ should be ministering to that problem. Uh, I'm sorry, the the gospel of Jesus Christ is there to say that you can be a a poor, hungry, starving person, we the poor, and and the infinite God of love and mercy is going to come down and care about us and love us so we don't have to be alone. But the separation between Christianity and all the other religions is that we believe in an infinite God and a finite man. While the rest of the religious world, they believe in what we call a system of works. They want to preach. They want to say, well, if you want to find this strange God that's so finite and hard to figure out, you need to do mighty good works and you need to comprehend and you need to be a good little boy and go to church on Sunday. And if you do just what you're told, you'll be good enough to go find this obscure God in heaven. And we, pure Christianity, would reject that system of me trying to find God. I believe that God is there to come into my life when I am lonely and destitute and I go, Lord, I'm weak, I'm a, I, 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 I'm a dirt ball. I, I need you to come into my life. I've, I've destroyed everything around me. Can you come in and help me, please? And the God of the universe says, I'll send my son Jesus to come down and to die into your place and to sit down and to give you a ransom so that you can come and be home with me. And then we find that satisfaction, that love. And if you look now at the, the campus of today, you can sit down and see that there's such a, a, a vacuum, an emptiness, because we believe that God created us. He made us, and He wants us to have fellowship with Him. And apart from Him, there's an emptiness in our life. And if we don't fill that emptiness with something, we'll just explode. And the only thing that fits into that emptiness is the love of God. He made us. He put that spot in our heart so that we'd fill it and that we would worship and love Him. And at that point, we would feel complete. But the world says, I don't want it. I don't want it. I want, I want to fill that with anything else but. And even the Hamans of this world are filled with pride to come up and say, no God in my life. Everyone pays homage to me. I'm the great thing around here. You do what I say. And then the power, the anger, and though that it comes overflowing to say, I'll kill and eradicate a whole of society. That's what's driving this movement of slaughter is hatred and anger. And Haman is filled with it. He's confronted with it of how dare you not pay me was due me. And you start to sit down and to see that a button is being pushed is what it is. That's a strange figure of speech. It's almost like we're, we're, you know, there's some remote control on us or something. And there's certain buttons that if you go through these certain set of sequences and do this on me, you know, I'm going to blow up and lose it on you. And and I don't know how that works, but there's buttons that seem to be pushed, if you would, within inside of us that can throw us over the edge. And it seems, just as a matter of fact, that the more pride you have, the more of a soft underbelly of many buttons to be pushed to throw you into anger. And what we want to do is to sit down and to say, you know what, I don't have any pride. I'm willing to make the statement I'm not okay. I need help. 
I'm hurting. Big God up there, come down and help me. I can't find you. I'm lost and confused. And the basis of Christianity is that as you reach out and you cry, you confess to God and you surrender to Him, the more God wants to work in your life. And then there is no more pride. There is no soft underbelly. There is no buttons to be pushed. We can have a sense of contentment. And we can sit down at that point and say, Lord, You reign in my life. You take over. And yet you're watching a world around us today that insists on no God that doesn't want to ask any of the obvious questions, that wants to live the lie and says, I'm okay without God. And then now we can just even watch a Haman. That's, that is, it says that he had the stain that to lay on uh, his hands on Mordecai alone. He wanted them all dead. For they told him of the people of Mordecai. And instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, 128 provinces the people of Mordecai. So let's kill all the Jews. The button is now being pushed inside of Haman. And so in verse 7 it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, it says they cast pur. It tells us in parentheses, that is the lot. He says, Before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So what Haman is going to do is he's going to go up and he says, basically he's reading his fortune cookie. He's basically got to go read his horoscope. And they're doing this thing called purr, which is they're taking a bunch of sticks. They take one short stick, they throw it on the ground, and then they read, if you would, the omens and the signs that are there. And basically what this boils down to for you and I is that Haman says, hey, my lucky day is over here on this day in such and such a month. And he's going to go, i got a lucky day. This, this is the day my horoscope says that if I were to go ask the king a favor, I would go up and talk to him at such and such a time. So his lucky day comes up. And he's not going to take responsibility for his choices. He's not going to, he's not going to own up to anything. He says it's all fate. And so in verse 8, And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, Hey, i got your ear now. There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are, are well, they're different from all other people's. And, and they do not keep the king's laws. Now, they're bad people. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. Now, he's not saying, yeah, this guy Mordecai really tweaked me, man. Let's kill them all. He's trying to sound dignified and political and trying to present the king with only something that's going to make sense. And don't we want to get rid of people that aren't going to fit in? And if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. It's a huge chunk of change. A talent is 70 pounds, so there's 10,000 of these 70 pounds of silver. It's a truckload of silver I've got into the hands of those who do the work, the henchmen, to bring it into the king's treasuries. So I'll tell you what, king, I'll even pay for this myself because I'm standing up for you. little kiss up. And he's saying, I want you to know we're going to kill some of these people. I'll pay for it myself. And so the king took his signet ring, and the signet ring was the one that would have a mark on it so that when he would lay it into a wax over a seal over something, it would say that this was the king's signature, if you would. And so he's, and I like this, he's pushing buttons using the finger of the king. 
So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you. Hey, you can keep it all. To do with them as seems good to you. Hey, let's slaughter a group of people. Why not? Hey. And then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of Haman's command to the king's satraps, which is a Babylonian-type governor, to the governors who were over each province, to the official of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus, it is written and sealed with the king's signet ring. So now his little plan is hatched, and he wants to go out and to kill and destroy them all. And I do find that it's interesting that Jesus comes up, and you know, Jesus, you know, spells out a kingdom that's not divided over hatred, But Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like a a, a merchant seeking fine pearls, he says. And when that merchant finds one pearl, the pearl of great price, he goes and he sells all that he has to go and to obtain it. And that's the way God works. He sees poor you and I. And He sees that we're destitute and we're lonely. And He says, you know, somebody's going to go down and help out, you know, dumb Dave Brown. I will send my son Jesus. I will give all that I am to go and purchase the pearl of great price. And here you're kind of watching the opposite. Haman's going out and he's selling his, uh, his, his nest egg He's selling all of his cash because he is angry and he wants to vent and he wants to destroy people. And you're going, really, you're watching two completely different things. I know what you're saying. You're going, oh, Pastor Dave, well, isn't, uh, you know, Haman and his anger to slaughter the group of Jews? What's the difference between that and God wanting to slaughter all the Amalekites? It's the same. And you go, no, it's not the same. It's completely different because... Because we're watching, if you would, when God works, he's giving somebody a sense of justice and saying, because you took a cheap shot, because you're doing something so foul, and because God loves the Jews, he's there to protect and to care, and he wants to provide and protect for them, while here you're watching Haman turn around, and it's his anger, it's his pride, and it's his hatred that's motivating people to be butchered. It's completely different in their motives. It's not one and the same. And Haman is turning around and he's saying, hey, because of who and what I am, I'm not going to love to obtain something. I'm here to destroy and to kill. Because it says, verse 13, and the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's providence to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old little children and women, in one day. We'll all coordinate it today. On one little lucky day, we'll get it all together to kill them all. On the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So the finger is on the the trigger, if you would, and it's there to destroy and to annihilate somebody because somebody's pride was wounded. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. That's where Queen Esther was, and Mordecai. 
So the king and Haman sat down to have a beer together and drink. Isn't this great? We're going to annihilate people. We don't care. Have another brewski. And it says, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. And so they're going, hey, you know, why do we have to turn around? We're going we're gonna to go out and slaughter people? And see, it doesn't make sense to them because they don't see the injustice. They don't see the things. And they're going, why? Well, this is going to be one man's hatred. You know, here's, you know, Ira, the little, you know, Goldberg, the little baker next to us. And we've got to go chop off his head for what reason? And, and obviously you're seeing that some guy is just filled with this anger, filled with this injustice. And, and it's not a personal vendetta that it is a personal vendetta that, that's being executed. And, and it's not the right motive for the people. So the people are perplexed. But Haman's hardening his conscience by having another brewski. So verse 1 of chapter 4. And when Mordecai learned of all that had happened, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. So sackcloth is like a big burlap bag. It's uncomfortable by design. He's not going to be dressed in anything fancy, anything of comfort. He wants to throw ashes on his head. He wants to show the outward pain of what's happening inward. And he went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Boo, hoo, hoo. Mordecai's in the middle of this. And I wonder if he's saying, I wonder if this is just because of my, my not ability. This is this my fault. I didn't worship Haman. I know what this is about. Haman's upset. He's bending the hand. And here, you know, I don't know what's going on. And so he went as far as the front of the king's gate. For no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. We just don't want that around here. Only happy people, please, come up to the king. <laughs> and, and honestly, we're seeing that uh, Haman and uh, Ahasuerus want to live in a little plastic happy land where everything is fine. And obviously the policy is, is please don't come in here crying and whining. We don't want to hear that. Only happy people. And yet it says in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, Hey, and the queen was deeply distressed. And notice her response. And then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai. Hey, would you put on something decent around here? And take away his sackcloth away from him. But he would not accept them. And I find it interesting that even she might be caught up into a little bit of the king's lifestyle to say, Mordecai, quit your belly aching and blubbering, put on something decent, and just put on a happy face for a while, okay? What's the problem? And it says, verse 5, Then Esther called Hathrach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai. So she goes and gets one of the servants next to her, Mordecai. He goes, you can, you know, you command Mordecai to learn what and why this was. Why are you outside crying? So Hathrak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy all the Jews. Hey, this is what's up. There's a huge chunk of change out there that's out there to kill us all. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction. Hello, can you read this? It says, kill everyone like me. 
which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead for him for her people. So Mordecai comes out. This guy says, what are you doing out here? He says, hey, 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 there's a lot of money on my head. This is a serious thing. I'm out here crying in the streets to get a little attention. Do you realize that we're all going to die here? And I need Esther to go into the king and ask him, "Uh, excuse me, can you rethink this process? Because it's going to slaughter everybody. This isn't fair. So Hathrak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathrak, this middle guy, and gave him a command for Mordecai. He goes, all the king's servants and all the, uh, and, and all the people of the king's providences know, everyone knows this, that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, it has but one law, put all to death. <laughs> so Esther's reply is, excuse me, if you want me to go in to go speak to the king, And if I go in uninvited, uh, you know what the rule is? You're just put to death. So do you realize I'm risking my neck for this? He says, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. So that if you go up and you go knock on the king's door, he says, excuse me, king, I'd like to sit down and and ask you a question. And the king says, excuse me, uh, you're an uninvited guest here. Go kill that guy. (laughs) And unless he sits down and he extends his golden scepter and says, all right, all right, I'll, I'll listen to you. What do you want? Uh, uh, you've risked life and death. You come in, I'll extend the golden scepter that he may live. And she says, yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. Hey, for the last month I haven't even seen this guy. I'm the queen even. I don't go walking in there. It's, you know, you're asking a lot of me, Mordecai. You're putting my, my life on the line. Mordecai's like, excuse me? There's like every single Jew's life's on the line. Verse 12. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. This is a classic line, the heart of the whole book, really. He says, "Do do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Mordecai's answer is, 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 is pointed. He's trying to make a point to say, Esther, Esther, you know, wait a second, stop and think about it. You know, we've lived a, a long, strange chain of events that have put us in a very unusual spot. Did you ever think for just a moment that maybe, just maybe, you might be there for such a time as this to save everybody? Come on! How dare you stop and and, and just go, well, I I don't know what or what's going on in my life. And we too many times in our life can can look at our lives and the message is is, is that that we never want to break out of our comfort zone because we feel that our life has just been falling apart around us. And we go, Lord, my life is just, I'm lonely, I'm miserable, I'm depressed. And Lord, I've had such a a long, strange chain of events that happening that nobody loves me. 
And the point is, is you have to stop and say, wait a second, wait a second. Maybe all these things are happening for a reason. Maybe God has a plan in your life. And maybe you're being put together for just the right thing so that this would come together so that it would all work out. Don't give up on God. There's a reason. You have to learn to look at your life and to value sometimes the unfortunate events in your life to realize that there could be a reason for what's going on. Now, I, I don't know about you. I, I've had a, a strange premonition from the, the, when I first got saved. I remember being in California. I'd been a Christian for about all of a week. I was sitting in the uh, apartment of this little home Bible study that I was part of. And I can remember telling the words leaving my mouth as I'm speaking to this guy, Jeff. And I said, Jeff, you know, I just don't really feel like I'm ever supposed to be a Billy Graham or do anything like really big with my life. I, I always feel like that maybe I'm supposed to be, you know, sitting there at the bus stop one day and I'm going to meet somebody. And as I meet this person, I'm going to explain the gospel to him. And then this person is going to go on and change the world. And I don't know why. I've always felt like there's just one person, some divine appointment I'm supposed to have. And, you know, when that is accomplished, I'm done with my life. So, I don't know, maybe you're here today and you heard your message and I'm done. I don't know. I, I never know. I'm not sure who, what, when, or where, or how. But I've always had that sense of, you know, that my life is to have purpose because of really just one person that I could affect. And, and, and I'm not sure, so, you know, if you think about that long and hard enough, you know, what happens when your, your car breaks down, you're on the freeway, you're late for an appointment, everything's falling apart, you go to the mechanic, the mechanic's trying to steal all the money from you, you're left all of a sudden at a bus stop, and you can sit down and says, oh, poo, hoo, 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 my whole life is falling apart and everything's going wrong today. Or maybe you should just wake up and say, maybe I need to, talk to this guy next to me at the bus stop. And maybe, just maybe, all these things came together so that I would get to know somebody that I would not normally get to know. How's that for an idea? And, and if you start to look at life, that there are weird, strange combinations of events that can happen in your life, and start to realize, Lord, when something's falling apart, maybe there's a reason. Maybe I'm the queen of Persia for, Persia for just this day. You know, honestly, this is, this, is, this is a true story. And, 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 and when I was in Phoenix and, and I had my own business, I was a pressure washer. I would steam clean engines. I'd wash trucks. I'd do a lot of stuff. And, and I woke up one morning. I was supposed to go out to, you know, this little podunk nowheresville, about 45 minutes away from where I lived in my apartment. And I go downstairs and walk outside. And I'm, my truck's parked outdoors. And, and sure enough, all my tools are stolen out of my truck. I'm, everything in my truck, I had a pickup truck, and everything in my truck was scattered all over the parking lot. So these guys come in, they want to grab something. They're sitting down there just, you know, uh, rummaging through anything that would have resale value and anything that had no pertinent value to them, they threw someplace else. And, you know, you can't help but have your blood boil. You can't help but be upset. There's a feeling of being violated to know that somebody has gone through your stuff and trashed everything and stolen everything. And I did my best to sit down and say, you know, I, I, I'm going to just pick up and I've lost several hundred dollars worth of tools and I'm just going to continue the day. And I get in my truck and I'm driving down and 
it's Phoenix, it's a little hard to understand, but I'm on the outskirts of town, if you would, which is borderline desert, and there's a guy out there that needs to, uh, you know, get this engine put back in, and he wants it pressure washed and clean before he puts it back into this truck, and the mechanic out there is one of these guys that, you know, he's the type of mechanic that sleeps at the job site. He, he was sleeping there that night. He doesn't have an apartment, doesn't have a house. He's smart enough to put the engine back in. You know, he's grimy. He stinks of body odor. He's uh, got grease all over him, missing a few teeth. You got the idea. And, you know, and I want to sit down and say, you know, maybe the Lord wants to use this to redeem this time. And I'm going to explain the gospel to him. And I'm up there witnessing to him. You know, and on the back of my truck, I had this huge bumper sticker. It was a big bumper sticker. It went all the way across the back window. It says, "No Jesus and don't be afraid for tomorrow. And I was trying to use that as a, a, a you know, springboard to say, you know, this guy needs Jesus as much as anyone else. And I'm out there washing this guy's engine for him. I'm telling him some of the things that happened. And lo and behold, you never believe what happens next. Up comes this blue Torino. Two guys pull up. Hey, how you guys doing? You want to buy some tools? <laughs> huh. Matter of fact, yeah, I'd be interested in buying some tools. Let me see what you got. Pops open the trunk, and he's got another big chest over there loaded full of tools. And guess what? There's all my tools sitting right there. And now, honestly, there's two guys there. I'm a big guy in a certain sense. Uh, there's one of the guys that's bigger than me and another little guy. And I take the big guy, and I grab him, and I slam him against this, this tank that's there. And I said, I can't believe you're stole from me. And I grab him, and I throw him over the back of my pickup truck. And I said, can you read this right here? It says, do you got any idea? You didn't steal from me. You stole from Jesus. And these guys are like, oh, no, no, man, I didn't take anything. A, a, a friend of mine gave it. To... Long story short, they get in their little blue Torino and peeling off down the thing, and now they leave all the cars there. And I'm sitting down there. You know how you're just in that mode where all your adrenaline's pumped and you're going, gee, I just took a guy bigger than me and threw him against him. Well, what was I thinking? You know, two against one. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the holy, righteous Dave. And you start going through all this and you're deprogramming and under, you know, unwinding a little bit. And you're going, well, what was just happening here, you know? And, and I'm, I'm getting in my car and I'm driving home. And, and you know, uh, you should have seen the look on this guy's face. He's like, Oh, well, you know, Dave, talk about, you know, the proof of God coming into your life. And as I'm driving home, I'm asking myself this question. I'm sitting down and going, Lord, I said, would you have my car broken into, have me go through this whole big thing and all the things that happened in my life today just to prove to this little guy that's sleeping there at the job site that you're real? And very few times in my life have I really heard the voice of God. And I'm telling you, clear as a bell, God just turns around and goes, yep. (laughs) And, you know... I've learned, I think, to understand that when everything's just turning upside down and over and around and backwards and forwards in every which way, you've got to sit down and say, God, what are you doing in this? And why is this? And then the truth is, is that in God's economy, in God's economy, he doesn't care about my tools. He doesn't care about my rent. He doesn't care about my truck. He doesn't care about all those stupid things. What he cares about is some little guy over here who's, who's sweating away his life and needs somebody to tell him about Jesus. And in God's economy, he will be more than happy to spend everything that I have, if it means that one person can enter into the kingdom of heaven because they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they know that they know that God just demonstrated that that's, that he's real. 
And you go, talk about a powerful sermon illustration to back up the issue that while you're witnessing to somebody, somebody comes up with your tools 45 minutes away from where I was. What are the chances of that happening? And you go, wow, God. And you kind of have that surreal feeling like, wow, you really wanted to have this guy know about you. You're really trying to say something. And in a certain sense, that's Esther. She's sitting down there going, whoa, 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 wait a second. I I, I could die. You know, if I go up to the king and if he doesn't like me, I could die. And Mordecai's, Mordecai's response is, look, chick, hey, you know, we've been working hard to get everything to this point. You've got to stand up. You've got to exit outside of your comfort zone and be who you are. And in all honesty, it is so hard for us. It is so hard for us to sit down and say, look, I'm, I'm stuck. My life is falling apart. I'm sitting here on the bus. And, and should I sit down and you think God's working in my life to talk to him? Should I just step out of my comfort zone a little bit and say, have you ever had the gospel of Jesus Christ explained to you in such a way that you've understood it? No, I haven't. Well, can I talk to you a little bit about the Lord? Well, yeah. But see, what happens inside of us is we're just paranoid. Well, if I go up and tell this guy about Jesus, he's going to mock me and put me down and, and tell me that Jesus is a farce. And, oh, I don't want to just risk anything. And, you know, I don't want the guy on the bus thinking the less of me. Come on. God's put you through everything in your life so you'd step up, step out. And I love this. God's working things in our life constantly because he wants us to say, I'm here, you're here for a reason. There's a purpose in your life. You're not just alone. And unfortunately, we feel so alone in our life because we say, nobody cares. There's no rhyme or reason to my life. Everything's a farce and I'm just a joke. I'll go nowhere. But the heart of faith starts to sit down and says, well, maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's part of God's plan in my wild chain of events of the things that have been happening. And a believer starts to ask that question, Lord, why? Am I missing something? Is there something here? And maybe I'm just the queen of Persia for a reason. And you go, yeah, that's what it's about. And you've got to love Mordecai. He turns around. And it's really important you catch hold of what was said by Mordecai. Because he turns around and he says, you know what? You know what, Esther? If you don't want to do this, you know what? God's plan is not thwarted because you don't do what needs to be said. He says, well, first off, you're not going to escape. You can't hide in the castle. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than the rest of the other Jews. You're going to be figured out. You're dead If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance, and I love this, will arise for the Jews from another place. Did you catch that? And so, you know what, if you want to stay in your little comfort zone and if you want to be who you are, the truth of the matter is, is God's still God. God's plan is going to, no one's killing all the Jews. He'll raise up deliverance somehow, some shape, but understand, you're just not part of the program. And then you're right. You are left out all alone but the heart that wants to be around people that wants to break through these things is one that says lord i want to be used i want to be part of i'm willing to make a sacrifice to become part of your kingdom and so you're watching esther then turn around and to say you're right there's a purpose there's a place i want to have value in the set of circumstances that are happening and i'm listening lord and i love this verse 15 then esther told them to re- uh, them to reply to mordecai Verse 16, go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan. Gather all the Jews and fast, and I like this part, for me. Not for them, 
but she's saying for me, that I may be bold, neither eat nor drink for three days, uh, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, abstain from food. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And you've got to love her heart. And if I perish, so what? I perish. And so Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. And so now Esther is getting it. She's now willing to have a heart of faith and she's going to stand up and she says, I don't care if I die. I've got to do the right thing. And that's somebody who says, I will be included in part of God's plan. I want to be used. used sorry. And, and she's not going to be like a ham of Mordecai that wants people's attention. She's saying, Lord, I'm going to forsake what people think of me. I'm going to do the right thing so that I can turn around and be responsible. Now, I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave you here on the edge of a cliffhanger to find out what Esther actually does. But that's my trick to entice you to come back to church next week. And uh, uh, ending here, though, we want to just uh, not lose fact of one thing. Esther takes the time to, it's an important concept, uh, concept, she fasts. Now, honestly, fasting is, it's not something I have to tell everyone here that, you know, you're not going to be a Christian unless you fast and pray. But I would like to say that there has to come a time in our lives where we push aside the things that we are uh, uh, having an affection for, our desires of food, and we have to deny ourselves to sit down and to say, Lord, I want to listen to what you have to say to me. And Esther was somebody to say, before I go jumping into something, I want to hear the voice of the Lord. I want to push aside the comforts of this world, and I want to be willing to, to get rid of things. And in all honesty, in our life, if you would like to be used of God, you, you have to be willing to say, Lord, I need to say no sometimes to the things that are causing me to compromise. I can't be doing this any, Lord. I've got to stop. I've got to eliminate. I've got to get rid of some sin in my life. And too many times in our life, we are gripped in fear because sin has got a grip on us. And it takes sometimes our heart to be able to say no, no to sin, no to our fleshly desires. And we have to say yes to the Lord and to say, Father, use me. I, I don't want to miss the opportunity. I don't want to sit down there and be gripped in fear and say, maybe I'm just here for no purpose and no reason. I'm just taking care of myself. To be a believer, to be full of faith is to turn around and to say, Lord, use me. I want to be part of the program. Lord, let me separate myself from my affections, separate myself from my desires and start to seek your will and start to listen to your voice, to reason and to understand that, that you may be, just may be using me at such a time as this. And so be encouraged, people. God loves you. He cares about you. And he's not given up on you at all. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do just come before You and we thank You and praise You, Father, for being an awesome, awesome God. I do pray, Father, that You would use us here today for Your kingdom and for Your glory. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would just continue to move and to touch throughout our lives. Father, if there is someone here that is, is lonely, is seeking companionship, I pray, Father, that our hearts would be filled with You and that you would satisfy us, Father, because you've designed us, you've built us, and you know what's going to make us complete. Father, we want to give our hearts to you. 
We want to separate ourselves from the things of this world. And just as Jesus said, Father, on his way to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he said, Father, not my will be done, but thine. I pray, Father, that we would be people that would be willing to separate ourselves from the world, not to compromise and to be bold and to be strong, to stand up at such a time as this. Father, the world is empty and miserable. They're shooting themselves up on college campuses. And I pray, Father, that we as a church would be bold enough to speak your truth. Help us to leave our comfort zone and to be all that we can be for you. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you.